For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. One year ago, Oklahomans decided to join other states in allowing for the distribution of medical marijuana. Since then, our state has vaulted to near the top in its patient participation rate. 3.5% of Oklahoma's nearly 4 million people are registered as eligible for medical cannabis. Ryan, you never seem surprised by the outcome of the vote last year, but are you surprised by these results? Yeah, well, I'm surprised at how uh, just how successful the industry's been in Oklahoma and how successful it's been for patients. I'm I'm one of those 3.5% of Oklahomans that have their medical marijuana license, and I can tell you that uh, as far as states go, and I, I, I talk with folks all around the country, and, and a lot of those folks from around the country are coming to Oklahoma right now because they will tell you whether they're from California, whether they're from Colorado, uh, or other states that have had either medical or recreational programs running for a while, that Oklahoma is one of the best climates in the nation right now for marijuana, both the, from the business side and from patient access side. Uh, and that's that's really exciting. And I think that you know there have been a couple of stumbles along the way. I mean, we can talk about the business side of it, but you know the the politics of it. Immediately after the passage of State Question 788, which it's, it's hard to believe that it's been a year, uh, but immediately after the passage, the State Health Department promulgates these rules, tries to adopt them in an emergency session uh, that, that would have basically gutted State mm-hmm. Question 788. The political response from that, the organic grassroots political response and re, uh, that basically revolted and said, no way, you're not going to take this away from us, um, really set the stage for not only the health department to reverse course, but for the legislative session this year. Instead of seeing a legislative session that felt that they had the political uh, ability to come in and undermine State Question 788, really what they've done is they've just tried to make it work better. And I mm-hmm. think that uh, moving forward, we're going to see uh, not only you know that kind of hands-off approach, but also the ability for patients to have better access and better quality control for the products they're getting and consuming in the state of Oklahoma. Neva. You know, I, I don't think anyone could have imagined, I mean, just the sheer numbers, <laughs> even the projections, uh, which were uh, conservatively um, what they projected and now what the the real numbers are as of this month are off the charts. And I think, uh, I think as you uh, as said, Michael, I mean, this puts Oklahoma uh, basically number one among the 33 states that have some, uh, some form of medical uh, cannabis legislation in place. So uh, it, it's, it's staggering. I think when you look at that, rate and you look at it in comparison when you take census numbers and all these projections. I mean, it puts us on a par basically with California, which has legalized marijuana. I mean, in terms of the uh, in, in terms of the uh, rate uh, per population per the population that we have. And, you know, I think that that uh, certainly begs a lot of questions for the future in terms of uh, what additional legislation, what additional uh, things that will have to come into play. But even on the money side, when you look at the fact that uh, it we basically have taken in $18 million in, in licenses and, and fees, and I think the uh, the uh, fee, the number was uh, $6 million in sales tax. I mean, these numbers, I mean, if we're talking in the first year, I mean, it's... Uh, it is certainly um, uh, kind of wildly beyond most people's imagination, I think, what the forecasting is going to be for the future. But I, I do think that uh, uh, the long and the short of it is that when 57% of Oklahomans a year ago went to the polls and said this is what they wanted, uh, it's it's clear that uh, that this was something that in Oklahoma it's time had come. We'll just have to see how that uh, how that gets shaped in the future with some of the, uh, you know, un, uh, I think there's no question there will be 
problems that will come down the road, and particularly with this uh, with this meteoric growth that we've seen. And well, and, you know, fifty-seven percent approved it a year ago. I think if it were on the ballot today, it'd probably be higher than that. We've had a lot of folks come out of the cannabis closet. And you start to talk to you know doctors and lawyers and teachers and people that you know just uh, regular folks, and they tell you that they are either now using cannabis or that they've been using cannabis in the closet for a long time, but now that they can use it legally, they're talking about it. And I think that that's a that's a huge component of it as well. On the revenue side, you know, we are seeing revenue, but medical marijuana has never really been about revenue. It's been about patient access, getting patients access to medicine. I think if Oklahoma in the next, you know, who knows if, if we'll attempt a recreational or a, a responsible adult use bill in the future. But if we did, that's where the real revenue would come in. And that's, you know, states like Colorado that have seen huge revenue numbers coming into their general uh, fund to be able to spend on education, healthcare, whatever. That money has come in from the recreational program, not the medical program. Well, you know, it's interesting too, though, when you when you look at Oklahoma. I mean, the lack of restrictions on the qualifying conditions has been a key part, I think, of this uh, of this uh, kind of explosion in terms of the number of, of licenses that have been granted. So, uh, and there's all kinds of questions that come into play if we talk about uh, going the the road of uh, uh, legalizing marijuana across the board. And how about the, the opioids? We got a big trial right now on opioids, and we know that uh, people are trying to maybe cut down on their opioids how much are they turning to marijuana when they know the dangers of opioid addiction i think that those are a lot of unanswered questions right now i think anecdotally and some of the small studies that we've seen show that there are positive benefits to jurisdictions that have medical marijuana and reduction in opioid use i think that medical marijuana has been demonstrated as a, a prominent way to treat opioid addiction to help get people get away from those highly addictive and highly destructive medicines. Um, but in the next, I think in the next five to 10 years, not only we're we going to see an explosion in the use of cannabis uh, for a lot of things, but we're going to see much more research. You know, for the longest time, uh, it, it has just been prohibited to do the kind of research necessary to come up with, uh, you know, medically uh, um, accurate studies that we can draw some conclusions. I think we're going to be able to see a lot of that in the next several years. And I was just at the medical marijuana, the the food safety board, and they were talking about research. Uh, could Oklahoma be a, a leading source of, of research when it comes to edible marijuana with smokable marijuana? Could Oklahoma be leading the way in this? Well, I think the potential is there. I mean, and I think the, the pressure will be on every state to uh, uh, to kind of up the ante in terms of getting good research. Uh, so as these uh, as these discussions come into play, not only on the legislative side but just in in the in the public uh, forum, that uh, that there'll be real numbers and hard data there that people can look at. Senator Jim Inhofe vows to hold military housing companies accountable after a Reuters report showing families at Tinker and other bases across the U.S. living in disrepaired and dangerous homes. Inhofe says part of his $75 billion defense bill would hold private companies accountable for fixing serious problems in military-based housing. Neva, do you think this goes far enough? Well, I, I think I think this is the tip of the iceberg, and I think the Reuters uh, uh, research, this investigative report that CBS uh, News uh, also was involved in, I mean, shows an outrageous, uh, an outrageous situation here where you have a company that basically is among the largest uh, military housing providers and and clearly was flagrant in the abuse that uh, that went on. I mean, in, in the instance of Tinker alone, where they determined that they kept two sets of maintenance books, uh, maintenance books at Tinker, and basically you had a handwritten set that was what was really happening, and you had this electronic record that was uh, basically uh, covering up uh, and listing response times that would garner them uh, bonuses in, mm-hmm. in the contract. And, and the fact that one of the things that, to me, was startling in, in the report 
support was the fact that these were 50-year contracts uh, that had been let by the uh, uh, by the federal government. And this is a company that is uh, actually uh, a subsidiary of a London-based company. Mm-hmm. And the whole crux of the matter was they wanted more and more high profit out of this particular entity. So it's riddled with problems. I'm, I'm certainly glad that Senator Inhofe and Congressman Cole uh, have, uh, you know, stepped up and, and heightened the rhetoric on this and certainly inserted this whole uh, discussion into the budget uh, aspect of uh, being able to kind of put the screws to the situation. But it's a big problem, and not only for Tinker Air Force Base here in Oklahoma, but across the country. Ryan, does this show sometimes the difficulty, the, the problems with privatization, uh, bringing in a private company whose goal is to make money, not necessarily to help the people? Well, you know, and I, I think that that's absolutely, I mean, what we're seeing here, this is just shameful. Uh, you know, they, they are making profits on the backs of our servicemen and women and their families. Uh, the conditions that we've heard described that uh, these folks are, are living in and reporting, you know, whether it's mold or their, their you know, leaks or whatever it is, you know, things that you would expect to get fixed by your landlord, who is your employer, the United States government. And, and it's just not happening. And it's, and it's all not based on like the inability to do it. It's just based on lies. Um, and then you had an instance of where even their government contact at one point was refusing to really investigate these claims. I mean, so, you know, that's a problem in and of itself. So I, I, I'm appreciative of Senator Inhofe and Congressman Cole to look into this. I do think that we, we should ask, you know, what is, you know, I, I understand that with the military, the way that it's structured in 2019, it's impossible for the military to absorb each and every single function uh, without having some private contracts. But is housing something that should be privatized? You know, should that be something that the military should do on its own so that whenever there is a need for accountability, you know, that that method of accountability goes through the chain of command? And, and I don't think it's, to me, it's not the issue of private privatized versus uh, the the federal government doing it. It's an issue of oversight, of regulation, of accountability. I mean, these things can be put in place. It's not an across the board. This is one bad, horrific example that should uh, throw every good, you know, a good contractor, good person or good company out there doing their job every day uh, for the the pay that's been constructed for them to uh, receive. That's not the issue. But to incentivize bad companies for bad behavior and not do something about it. And frankly, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations should really pursue with real diligence to the Department of Justice and see what can be done about this, as opposed to just say, uh, we identified it, it's unfortunate, we didn't identify it, but you know, but uh, it was identified for us, and now we're going to uh, correct this and move on down the road. I think it's a much bigger discussion that needs to take place. Yeah, we shouldn't have to wait on an investigative report to get that. And right. I think that part of the investigation should be around why is it that whenever servicemen and women were reporting this to the oversight agency within the government, that they were giving this con- they are giving this private contractor a pass. I think I mean, that's, that's the big, I think yeah. that's the that's, biggest that's issue. A big, that's in a my big mind. question as well because it deals with oversight. That's right. Yeah. The state Supreme Court refuses to hear arguments on a controversial alcohol law. Senate Bill 608 requiring manufacturers of the top 25 brands to sell their their wares to all wholesalers is heading to Oklahoma County District Court instead. Ryan, why would justices send this to a lower court? That's a really good question. To me, the the answer uh, to to the, the lawsuit, I mean, it seems 
Like it's, it seems pretty clear to me. I mean, the, the state question has language that this uh, state statute is directly in conflict with. And whenever you've got this, a state question that modified, that amended the state constitution, it becomes part of the constitution. The constitution is going to trump any law that the legislature wants to make. If the legislature doesn't think that this policy of allowing manufacturers to go beyond the distributors in these situations is a good idea and, and to pick certain folks that they want to work with based whether that's quality control, branding, or any other agreement that they want to agree with, then they need to go back to the people and probably pass a ballot measure. So, you know, the, the state question to me does seem to be in conflict with the state constitution, whether you think that's good policy or not. Trying to change it through the legislature didn't seem like it was the right way to go. So, I don't know why they punted it back to the to the district court other than maybe they think that it is just a perfunctory matter and, and maybe the district, because there doesn't really seem to be a lot of fact-finding that has to happen here. Mm-hmm. Neva? Well, to me, I mean, it is a big question because it's going back to the district court. By the time you go through the procedural motions and the continuances and everything, it'll wind up in the court of uh, uh, civil appeals probably and back to the Supreme Court. So all this does is de- really delay something definitive on the, on the matter, <laughs> probably for a couple of years potentially. And the other aspect to it is that the uh, law is supposed to take effect late next month. I mean, there'll no doubt uh, be an injunction uh, to uh, uh, to uh, try to uh, determine, you know, what's going to happen long term on this situation. So really, I mean, nothing's happened other than everybody's uh, lived to fight another day, it looks to me like. Well, and if they if there is an injunction, you know, which, you know, or that you know, the district court could dispose of it real quick. I mean, there could be a they motion. Said, yeah. There could be a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment. And it could just be over. Uh, in the event that they find that the Constitution trumps this new state statute, and and that's that. But wouldn't then the, when the, when the, then the state actually have to uh, appeal it? To, there could, to there the, could be an appeal, and it could go to the court of civil, uh, the court of appeals at the civil level, or it could go, you know, straight to the Supreme Court. I mean, there are a lot of different avenues yeah. there that that it could move. But I, you know, then the question is whether or not it's going to take effect while all this litigation right. is taking place. And I think Neva's right; it's it's probably not. President Trump's Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, comes to Oklahoma to visit the Dick Connor Correctional Center. The prison in Hominy saw a record number of inmates graduating with a degree or certificate from Tulsa Community College and Langston University. Neva, why would DeVos be interested in this? Well, I think because she's interested in uh, advocating for this particular, the second chance Pell pilot program becoming a permanent program and I mean when you look at the statistics and certainly this graduating class was something uh, that everyone could be proud of and I think it uh, gave uh, it gave the, uh, the the U.S. Secretary of Education an opportunity to uh, once again advance uh, advance this discussion. So uh, I think we have to applaud the folks here in Oklahoma who have uh, been central to uh, uh, at uh, Tulsa Community College, uh, along with Langston University Department of Corrections, all who have worked uh, cooperatively in this in this way. And certainly, uh, as we look at the statistics, the recidivism rate, those folks who get education while they are incarcerated and come out have a better likelihood uh, to not go back than those that don't. That's right. Ryan? Yeah, Secretary DeVos has been advocating on Capitol Hill to make this a permanent program. It was a pilot program started under the Obama administration. So this is one of those rare instances where, you know, a Trump administration (laughs) official isn't trying to overturn something that the Obama administration did, but instead to try to make it permanent. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's a worthwhile effort here. I mean, we we should be investing uh, in educational programs. A lot of the educational programs that we're seeing in the Department of Corrections right now are as a result of this federal funding uh, and the ability for folks to be able to pay for this because there wasn't state money for it. And if you were going to go, you either had to pay for it on your own, you had to try to get loans and good luck trying to get a loan while you're in prison. (laughs) I mean, all those things are really difficult. And so 
this removes a lot of those barriers. Yeah, you know, I, looking at the, the folks that are getting these degrees and their ability to, to go on with their lives or at least try to go on with their lives whenever they are released, you know, the, the question that I have anytime that we're dealing with folks in prison is should they be in prison in the first place? And, you know, I, I, uh, I think that a lot of these folks, if they should have been in prison, they should have been in for much shorter sentences or they should have been diverted in the first place. They probably had a mental health or a substance abuse problem that was the underlying cause for why they engaged in the kind of criminal activity that put them in prison in the first place. We also see a lot of overzealous prosecutions and, and charges. I mean, the, the reasons that people are there aren't the reasons that we're often fed whenever we watch Law and Order on TV. So, right. you know. This is a great program. I hope that it's made permanent, and I hope that ultimately in the future we have far fewer people in prison that need to take advantage of it. But I think the focus on those who are in prison, uh, that we give them reason. opportunities for whatever yeah. reason, that, that they have opportunities mm-hmm. to, uh, uh, to have an opportunity once they uh, are released, if they are, to be able to become a productive member of society. You can't do that without education. You can't do that with some without some means to be able to make a living and uh, uh, this is certainly, a, I think, a perfect example with Secretary DeVos, uh, who has uh, demonstrated and advocated for a program on its merits. I mean, you know, oftentimes uh, we get into the uh, to the, the kind of the the dividing line on the partisan, you know, the partisan issues in Congress. But this is clearly an issue that is bipartisan. It has nothing to do with anything but looking at it on its merits and what has already been proven in this pilot program. And our, we, our own Quentin Chandler went out and talked to the the people in Hominy and in one one young man who had a 4.0 graduate was graduating with a 4.0 and took pride in that and that yeah. is one of the things that yeah. happens when someone graduates with a degree and and that they can something to take pride in well one of the things that happens when you go into prison is that our prison system right now regardless of you know some some best efforts of, of folks there the prison system that we have right now our criminal justice system that we have right now is meant to dehumanize people it dehumanizes you throughout that entire process so the ability to have some pride is is incredibly important um and so yeah this these kinds of programs if, if they also remind us of you know this is a federal program but it reminds us of the efforts that we need here at the state level representative zach taylor this year had uh, a bill that dealt with licensing so it doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you come out with uh, a if, yeah, with a with job. a degree or some sort of a, a, cert, a, cert, a certificate for vocational uh, career and you can't get a job so folks like representative taylor that are trying to fix that at the state legislature that reminds us that all these things kind of work together the Democratic Party reprimands some of its most prominent members for supporting Republicans. The biggest complaint stems from Democrats backing white Republicans like Attorney General Mike Hunter over African-American Democrats like Mark Miles. Uh, the so-called Democrats for Hunter group included former Governors Brad Henry and George Nye, former Congressman Dan Boren, as well as former Attorneys General Mike Turpin and Robert Henry. Ryan, I have to ask you, do you think race played a part in this. I, I don't think it did at all. I mean, I, I think that uh, I think that the, there were a number of, re- you could look at any one of those individuals and the reasons that they either supported or gave money to uh, to the attorney general, general. And there are reasons that you know, are, are just sometimes very apparent. And, uh, and you know, not the least of which is that he was probably going to win. And a lot of these folks had business in front of the attorney general's office. So it makes sense uh, to, to invest in that campaign. Now, I, I also think so. I, I don't think race played any role in that. Now, now the optics of it, the optics are always different. The optics of it don't look good. And that's something that the, that the party, you know, should have a conversation about. Um, but I, I do think that this insistence on partisan purity is, is misplaced, uh, in my opinion. You know, and I'll give you an example. I will take a Republican district attorney that is committed 
to uh, criminal justice reform and changing the way that they run that office of district attorney and their district over a Democrat that can that insist on defending the status quo any day of the week. And so if we are going to have these you know, puritanical measures of, of loyalty within the Democratic Party, I think the metrics ought to be something different than did this person give money or did this person uh, help out this candidate? It should really be on you know, do we have Democrats out there in offices that aren't upholding Democratic values? And if so, let's have that conversation. I'll tell you, if, it would have been really difficult for me when I was in office if my good friend Harry Coates, uh, who was a state senator at that time, mm-hmm. had drawn a strong Democratic challenge. It would have been really tough for me to go out and campaign against Harry Coates. I mean, that's... He was in your district. And, and right? so I guess by all these measures, you know, supporting a Republican <laughs> DA who would fight cr- for criminal justice reform, having a difficult time uh, campaigning against a friend like Harry Coates, uh, I, I would fail the partisan uh, purity test right now <laughs> with the Democratic Party, or at least with uh, some folks within the party. Neva? <laughs> well, I, these party loyalty tests have been around since the parties began on both mm-hmm. sides. Sure. I mean, this has nothing new. I mean, we can we can uh, show cases with the, the Democrats, as we're talking about right now, as well as the Republicans. And I think party activists have a different, kind of a different code and a different view of how they want folks, uh, particularly those that have been elected to office uh, uh, or, or in public office, uh, to... Um, uh, to kind of hold the, you know, kind of hold the uh, party line and, and wave the party flag. And it doesn't always work nowadays. And I think we, we've seen uh, this demonstration over and over again. And oftentimes it's not about even party. It's about, uh, as you say, it's about friendships. It's about uh, uh, family ties. It can be about a lot of things that have nothing to do with partisan politics. So I think, again, when you, in, it, but then it's regrettable, I think, when you infuse this discussion that it, that it somehow that things are racially motivated I think that was regrettable I think I think it what we see here is more of an instance of uh, folks trying to posture and perhaps see who's going to be able to be a national delegate or not and some of the other things that only uh, only folks that are involved in party politics it's inside baseball the average uh, the average person regardless of their party affiliation could care less about and frankly uh, uh, when reading about it kind of shake their head I think most of the time and wonder what in the world is this all about well still I do got to ask because these are some of the most prominent Democrats we have in Oklahoma politics, and part of the reprimand is that they are not allowed to be delegates to the DNC. Is that going too far? I think it go, absolutely goes too far. I mean, these these, uh, these are folks that are important members of the Democratic Party. I'm, you know, Dan Bourne, good friend of mine. Uh, Dan and I disagree on a lot of political issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is this blue dog Democrat in Congress, and there are a lot of times that I'd wake up in the morning and read about some vote that you he made and just shake my head <laughs> and and think and you know and, and I and I would rib him about it uh, quite a bit and 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 try to you know convince him and, and persuade him to, to come to the left and join me a little bit but uh, you know at, at the end of the day he's he's a Democrat he's raised a lot of money for Democratic candidates I think that uh, there are a lot of Democrats that he would stick his neck out for and that's that's important you know I'll, I'll say that there's there is a distinction though if you're in meetings uh, where confidential campaign or political strategy is being discussed so whether you're like on a, uh, a central campaign or, or, or um, uh, for a party a coordinated campaign for a party or if you're in a legislative caucus meeting and you're talking about political strategy or something like that, you have an obligation. If you've got a conflict, you need to acknowledge that conflict and you may even need to walk away from those meetings because you know there you could be in a position where you could compromise the integrity of confidential uh, communications. You know, so you, if you have those conflicts, you need to acknowledge them and be able to uh, own up to it and walk away if you have to. But just simply supporting somebody that happens to have an R next to their name to me, that seems to be the wrong metric here. Well, and the other thing is the political reality, the folks that were mentioned, these high-profile 
Democrats that were mentioned, probably by uh, even David Walters, I think, estimate in the meeting, he said at least, suffice it to say, it was probably a million dollars of money that these particular individuals have been responsible for raising for the party and, and their candidates. So, I mean, the fact that uh, the fact that there was this break on one race uh, that they wanted to call into question, the, 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 the counter to that is, are you willing to forego all of the clout, all of the political capital, all of the fundraising? capacity that these individuals have for other candidates that may uh, that may well need it in the 2020 election cycle. And an even more recent example than the, the 2018 election cycle was the 2019 legislative session when you watched several Democrats become real obstacles to criminal justice reform passing in the state legislature. I mean, if the Democratic Party wants to have a conversation about its you know, loyalty to democratic principles, you know, to me that is a, more, a much more important conversation to have is you know, where are those Democrats on these incredibly important issues to the party and why have they been so obstinate? And we mentioned about the Democrats trying to hire uh, an executive rather than uh, letting the chair be the executive. Do you think if there's a one controlling figure of the Democratic Party that that might help uh, control the, the party itself? They need a director. I mean, that's that's just you know plain that's and simple. That's the day-to-day operational the day-to-day person. Op- if, you don't, if you don't have a director there, then you're leaving a lot of stuff on the thing. You know, a lot but, of mails are going unanswered. But that director needs uh, former governors and other high-profile people in, in their party to be able to fundraise and do the things right. that give them the clout and the stability to move whatever their agenda and their issues are forward. And, and frankly, parties at the end of the day were designed and have always been at the core about helping support financially and with ground, you know, with the, with the foot soldiers to be able to help elect the people that are uh, that are running uh, as candidates within that particular party. So I think I think a lot of this other stuff kind of uh, confuses uh, the the conversation. And mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, they all have to get back to the basics, and that's where the rubber, ru- the real rubber meets the road. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.